Author Jonathan Eig was deep into researching his new book about Martin Luther King Jr. when he zeroed in on an interview that King gave to Playboy magazine in the 1960s. So Ig asked an archivist for the transcript. Well, the transcript came to me by email, so not very glamorous. I wasn't going through boxes. I wasn't flipping through pages of old letters and yellowed newspaper clippings, which I love to do. I was thrilled to see that each file was about 85 pages long and that there was a lot there to dive into. This interview was conducted by journalist Alex Haley, and it became hugely important. So I was very familiar with it. But as he started reading the unedited transcript, he made a shocking discovery. And realized very quickly that a lot of this interview transcript was different from what was published. And then when I got to the Malcolm X part, that's when I had my sort of holy cow moment. In the published interview, King says Malcolm X, quote, has done himself and our people a great disservice. And that Malcolm X's fiery rhetoric, quote, can reap nothing but grief. But according to the unedited transcript, King never said that. This is a huge deal, Ike says, because this fabricated quote was repeated over and over and helped define how the public understood the relationship between these two men. Playboy and Alex Haley were driving a wedge between two of our most important civil rights activists. And King was, was duped, really. In the long term, it perpetuates the myth that Malcolm and, and Martin Luther King were antagonists. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Thursday, May 25th. Today, we dig into how this one fabricated quote shaped our understanding of the civil rights movement and the role Alex Haley, who died in 1992, played in documenting the lives of King and Malcolm X. Author Jonathan Eig shares the research behind his new book, King, A Life, and what these new revelations about King's true feelings can teach us today. So, John, I definitely want to get more into how this narrative around Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and their relationship came to be. But I think it would be helpful to first sort of set the stage and have a little history lesson. I think many people are familiar with Martin Luther King Jr. on some level. But maybe you can just tell us what exactly did he believe in? Martin Luther King, when he becomes famous um, you know, around the time of the Montgomery bus boycott, is really seen as the nation's leading activist in pursuit of integration. He is trying to force Southerners in particular in the beginning to open up society to the Black citizens who have been denied equal status. So for a lot of people, he becomes seen simply as this avatar of integration, this, this advocate for uh, breaking down the most egregiously unfair laws uh, around race in America. But that's just because um, it's easier to see him that way. And the white news media that comes down south likes to portray him as this hero who's up against these bigoted southern villains. But really all along, King is talking about much more than just integration. He's also talking about racism in the North. He's talking about the more subtle forms of, of segregation in the North. Uh, he's talking about income inequality. He's talking about police brutality. Uh, so 
we do him a disservice, really, when we when we focus on just the most sort of fundamental and, in some ways, um, low-hanging fruit that he was working on in his career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, al- and also becoming a symbol of th- this particular approach of nonviolence to affect a, a moral revolution and change, right? That's right. King is seen as as a nonviolent advocate for for reform, and some people, including Malcolm X, confuse his call for nonviolence with passiveism. You know, he's 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 a pacifist, but there's nothing passive about him. He believes that nonviolence is a more powerful weapon than any you know gun you can build or any threat of violence. He believes that by showing that we are willing to suffer for what we believe in, by showing that we are morally superior to the people who are wielding batons and police dogs and water cannons, that he will gain the moral high ground and triumph in the end, proving that, you know, love conquers evil. And and he takes that very seriously. But um, some people, including Malcolm X, like to use that to portray him as weak. Yeah. And, and what about Malcolm X? Now, now let's turn to, to this other person. And can you just remind us who he was and what did he believe and what did he believe the best approach was to achieve what he wanted to achieve? Well, Martin Luther King was educated at one of the greatest black colleges in America and went on to get his doctorate at Boston University. Malcolm Little was educated in prison and changed his name to Malcolm X when he became an adherent of the, of the rules of the Nation of Islam and a follower of Muhammad, Elijah Muhammad. And um, Malcolm and the Nation of Islam do not believe in integration. They believe that it is a waste of time and counterproductive to ask America to embrace and treat equally black people in America, that it's never going to happen. And that the only solution is for black Americans to separate themselves from white society, form their own civilization, their own country, and start building their own businesses, their own economies, their own uh, schools. So Malcolm X ends up really being very critical of Martin Luther King and the mainstream civil rights movement. That's our motto. We want freedom by any means necessary. We we want justice by any means necessary. And he actually, I think, gains a lot of popularity, uh, gains a lot of followers because he's attacking Martin Luther King, calling him weak. He calls him Reverend Dr. Chicken Wings, and he refers to the March on Washington as the, the farce on Washington. He calls Martin Luther King an Uncle Tom. And he's clearly using King as a foil because he knows that by comparing himself to King, he can emerge as the more dangerous activist. And how was their relationship framed through the media? Because there's the reality of this and what they're saying in public and how they receive um, each other. And I'm just curious, like... How did this play out in the media, you know, before this interview that Martin Luther King Jr. did with Alex Haley uh, for Playboy and then after after that? I think the media just liked to highlight the conflict between them any chance they could get. Um, anytime, you know, Malcolm criticized Martin Luther King, it made big headlines. And on the few occasions where King responded and said that— um, you know, he disagreed with Malcolm. Again, big headlines because uh, the the media, the white media at least, was mostly interested in trying to show how the movement was was um, was was riven by conflict. Hmm. Yeah, and I'm also thinking about how 
you know, in the years and decades since, there's this narrative taken hold of Malcolm X being an extremist and Martin Luther King Jr. not being an extremist. And, and especially when thinking about Dr. King and how civil rights leaders are framed now, you know, children all across the country memorize the I Have a Dream speech and you have politicians citing King in, in their own political rhetoric. But you know, in some of the reporting I've done in the past, looking at public opinion polling at the time of King's life, vast majority of Americans, and especially white Americans, largely disapproved of him and his tactics. Um, and I, I think that speaks to how he, in his life he he was an extremist, right, in his own way. We forget that even at the time of the March on Washington, was when King was at the peak of his popularity, something like 75% of white Americans were opposed to the March on Washington. They thought it was, right. it was dangerous, that there would be rioting. And in the years after that, King's popularity fell even further. He was not even on the charts anymore among the most admired Americans in the Gallup polls. And as a result of that, we tell the story that King was was soft, that he was all about, you know, I have a dream and the content of our character. We forget that even in that March on Washington speech, he was railing against police brutality and calling for reparations. So we've done him a disservice. And the misuse of this Malcolm X quote contributes to that. And, and is it true that Malcolm X evolved on some of his views later in his life, particularly after he went on pilgrimage to Mecca and visited Africa and he had a falling out with the Nation of Islam? Malcolm X absolutely changed and absolutely found himself more aligned with Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King, I think, also grew more aligned with Malcolm. After Malcolm left the Nation of Islam, he began to take more interest in politics. He began to see some um, possibilities that white people might be capable of working with him. And um, he even, you know, approached Martin Luther King, went to looking for him, hoping to talk to him in Selma, um, only to find that when he got there, King was in jail. But he said to Coretta that day, they sat together in church in Selma, and, and Malcolm said to Coretta, let Martin know that I'm with him, that mm -hmm. I, I've got his back, and maybe it will do him some good if the world knew that I'm the alternative. Maybe people yeah. will be more inclined to negotiate with him and to give in to his demands if I'm out there threatening something more radical on the other side. Hmm. He's saying that to Coretta Scott King, um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s wife, and it, it's saying it as a strategic, like, they have the same goals. It's just the methodology and the strategy might be different. Yeah, not to uh, use an ironic um, comparison, but it's a good cop, bad cop kind of thing. Malcolm's saying, I'm happy to be the bad cop if it helps Martin Luther King get us toward our mutually shared goals of Black dignity, Black pride, equal rights. After the break we get back to that pivotal interview and the fabricated quote that for so long shaped our understanding of King and Malcolm X. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. 
Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. So, John, I would love now to step back and talk about another person who has since become integral to how we view, especially Malcolm X, and that's Alex Haley. So can you tell me who he was and what role did he play in educating and informing the public about these two men? Alex Haley was one of the most popular um, and successful Black journalists of his era, and he was writing primarily for white publications. He was a regular contributor to Reader's Digest, which was, I believe, far and away the most popular periodical in America at that time. So he had enormous reach and um, enormous respect. And he also had access to a lot of the leading black figures uh, at that time, including Martin Luther King, including Malcolm X. So um, his ability to tell the stories from the black community to largely white audiences made him a very powerful journalist. Alex Haley also wrote the autobiography of Malcolm X, which became a movie, and he also wrote Roots. And I mean, these were really important, popular books, right? Alex Haley, um, along with Malcolm X, produced the biggest-selling work of African-American literature in history. The autobiography of Malcolm X, to this day, I believe, is the biggest-selling Black history book, period. And it had and continues to have enormous impact. It's something um, that, that anyone interested in Black history is, is bound to read at some point in their lives. And some people, you know, read it over and over. And the same thing goes for Roots, the, uh, the book that um, Alex Haley said was based on his own ancestry, on his own family's history of coming from Africa into America and into enslavement. Um, is one of the greatest selling books uh, in American history. So his, his works have had enormous impact, but his works are also deeply problematic. Yeah, and Roots also became one of the most watched miniseries in the country. Um, so it had an impact beyond the book. Can you tell me about some of the controversy that um, Haley's work has faced since? We have begun to learn in recent years just that how much of, of Haley's work was plagiarized and fictionalized. He was sued for Roots uh, because he essentially, I believe, um, plagiarized much of it. And, and it turns out that a lot of what he claimed was his own family's history was not his own family's history. So that work is, has come under great um, suspicion. And the same can be said for the autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, Manning Marable, in his um, biography of Malcolm X, um, discovered some some serious flaws with the autobiography. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's called the autobiography of Malcolm X, but Alex Haley wrote it, right? Didn't it publish after Malcolm X's assassination? It's my understanding that um, Malcolm at best saw just a few chapters of the so-called autobiography, that most of it was written and all of it was um, edited after uh, Malcolm's assassination. So Haley and the editors who handled that book pretty much had carte blanche to do whatever they wanted with it. And um, Malcolm had no say over the final product. John, can you tell me about the circumstances of this interview that Alex Haley conducted with Martin Luther King Jr.? What year did it take place and, and how did he, you know, take his notes and how did it end up in the printed page? In 1964, Playboy assigned Alex Haley to interview Dr. King, and he interviewed King several times on several occasions, mostly in his office, 
at the church in Atlanta. And um, by late in 1964, he began putting the, um, the article together. And what I found in the archives was three different versions of the article, including um, also some, some correspondence to and from his editor. But in these three different versions, the first one is simply a transcript of the tape. Uh, the archives do not have the tapes. We don't know if they're out there somewhere. But um, the first document is an 85-page transcript of the tape. So it's exactly what King said. As far as we know, this was a, a secretary typing up the transcript of the tape for Alex Haley. The second document that I was able to get from the library was the edited transcript of that. That's where Haley is submitting the his version of the transcript to the editors. And of course, you know, that's that's all totally acceptable. When you record a long interview with somebody, you take the best parts and uh, you might shorten up some of the answers. Uh, you might decide that certain answers weren't very interesting and you don't have space for all of them anyway. Uh, all of that is acceptable. But in that second transcript, we also see these dramatic changes being made. And that's where the problem comes in. And then the third thing we have, of course, is the finished product. We have the published article has it appeared in Playboy. And that's um, almost identical to the um, second typed version of the article. In the unedited version of the transcript, Haley asks King, Dr. King, what is your opinion of Negro extremists who advocate armed violence and sabotage? And Dr. King replies, Fiery, demagogic oratory in the black ghettos urging Negroes to arm themselves and prepare to engage in violence can achieve nothing but negative results. Those who are fired up in the audiences go home and face the same unchanged conditions. What is left but for them to become bitter, disillusioned, and cynical? The extremist leaders who offer a call to arms are invariably unwilling to lead what they themselves would certainly know would certainly end in bloody, chaotic, total failure. The struggle of the Negro in America to be successful must be waged with positive efforts that are kept strictly within the framework of our democratic society. This means reaching and moving the large groups of people necessary of both races to activate sufficiently the conscience of a nation. It is this effort that the SCLC attempts to achieve through the program which we call Creative Nonviolent Direct Action. And then Haley asks, Dr. King, would you care to comment upon the articulate former black Muslim Malcolm X? And Dr. King replies, I have met Malcolm X, but circumstances did not enable me to talk with him for more than a minute. I totally disagree with many of his political and philosophical views as I understand them. He is very articulate, as you say. I don't want to seem to sound as if I feel so self-righteous or absolutist that I think I have the only truth, the only way. Maybe he does have some of the answer, but I know that I have so often felt that I wished he would talk less of violence because I don't think that violence can solve our problem. And in his litany of expressing the despair of the Negro without offering a positive, creative approach, I think that he falls into a rut sometimes. And so then can you read to me what ended up in the Playboy interview or what ended up in the edited transcript after Alex Haley went through through the tapes? So this is the way Haley printed King's remarks about Malcolm X. He is very articulate, as you say, but I totally disagree with many of his political and philosophical views. 
I have often wished that he would talk less of violence, because violence is not going to solve our problem. And in his litany of articulating the despair of the Negro without offering any positive creative alternative, I feel that Malcolm has done himself and our people a great disservice. Fiery demagogic oratory in the black ghettos urging Negroes to arm themselves and prepare to engage in violence, as he has done, can reap nothing but grief. Oh my gosh, he basically took a quote from a completely different answer and superimposed it on an answer about Malcolm X when that's not what King was talking about. I mean, my jaw is kind of on the floor. (laughs) Yeah, so was mine. It's shocking. And he not only transposes one answer to another, he adds a little bit too. He adds some embellishments that, you know, can reap nothing but grief. That doesn't even sound like something Martin Luther King Jr. would say. John, can you talk to me about the importance of this fabricated quote? Because the two men did differ. They did have criticism about each other that was public. How important was this specific quote and how did it end up dividing the civil rights movement? I think this quote is really important because it further separates King from Malcolm X and it denies us the truth, which is that King was open-minded. King was open-minded to almost everybody who disagreed with him within the movement, Uh, even to, you know, Southern white segregationists. He was willing to engage and to discuss with them, but certainly with Stokely Carmichael and the Black Power Movement, he was open to discussing and engaging. And what he's really saying here in Playboy is that he's open to learning from Malcolm X. And how could that have changed history? What if these men had sat down together? What if they had decided that it was time to really think about how they could work together. That's a possibility. But the reason this quote is important is because it could have precluded that. It could have had an impact on any possible detente. And it, of course, you know, continues to inform our mistaken opinions. So it is casting these men in, in, you know, in opposite corners throughout history. We've been educating children about their divisions when, in fact, we we could have been showing that they were coming together in many ways. John, why do you think he printed this fabricated quote from Martin Luther King Jr. when when asked about Malcolm X? We can really only speculate as to his motivations, but I think clearly um, he thought it would be sexier because it would sell. You know, it's more conflict is good. Journalists love conflict. And to create conflict between these two men uh, makes the story uh, more exciting. Journalists love conflict, but they also love the truth, right? And it's like nothing is, is worse as a journalist than someone, than having to run a correction on a story, let alone, you know, you making something up. It's not something that actually happens often, right? Well, I would say that Most journalists are truly devoted to the truth. Um, Alex Haley may not have been one of them, and I guess he thought he could get away with it. I guess he thought that nobody would notice. And he was right. Nobody noticed for, what, you know, 60 years? Yeah, until you got your email. Right. (laughs) And King must have been aware of this published quote, so why do you think he, he didn't do anything about it or tried to clarify, as best as we know? Well, I don't know that King was aware of it, to be honest. I don't think he had time Mm. to read these, you know, this 12,000 word story where it was already stuff that he thought he'd said. So if I said it already, why do I need to read the article? Um, But it is kind of surprising that none of his aides um, came to him and said, hey, I read that whole thing. And did you really say this about Malcolm? Um, But again, he had a lot bigger things to worry about. Mm. Yeah. And I also wonder about how, like, talking about children and school children and just everyday people 
who are reading about these figures and did this quote and this idea that you were either a follower of King or a follower of Malcolm X, did that bleed into the lives of everyday people and families? Yeah, we can't even begin to really measure the ripple effects. Think about all the young activists who grew up reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, and we can't be sure now that they got the truth. Think about all the young activists who felt like they had to pick sides. We're not just young activists, young thinkers, everybody who felt like they had to pick sides between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Think about how that has affected our image and how many people have grown up thinking that Martin Luther King was boring, that he was conservative because he wasn't uh, in line with Malcolm X. Well, they were more in line and they might have been even more in line had they had the opportunity. And this quote helps to uh, really damage that possibility. I also feel like this is such a good example of how often we want to boil down complex people and movements into catchphrases or particular figures, put them in boxes so that we can easily understand them. And I feel like that's especially true of the civil rights movement. There's like this collective and popular understanding that it was like a couple of people who, you know, uh, I think Julian Bond used to say that the public opinion about the civil rights movement was basically boiled down to Rosa sat down, you know, Martin stood up and white folks saw the light and saved the day, where In fact, the civil rights movement was a lot of grassroots people on the ground, a lot of black women. You know, there's so it was so complex. And also there were a lot of different approaches and strategies. And it it feels like using this quote, the way it has been used, allowed for this simplified narrative. And do you agree with that? And if that's the case, like why do why is there this tendency to to want to do that? It's laziness that forces us to, or compels us to put people into simple categories with, you know, something that can be boiled down on a t-shirt. So, you know, the t-shirt shows, you know, Malcolm X with a, with a gun and shows Martin Luther King with a dream. And that's all we can handle, uh, or that's what people would like to, uh, think that that we that we can only handle. In fact, we are capable of appreciating the nuance. We are capable of understanding that Martin Luther King in many ways was more radical than Malcolm X. And we are capable of understanding that Malcolm X criticized Ma- Martin Luther King viciously, but also did so for a purpose and had the bigger picture in mind about how they might together um, force change. So we need to embrace nuance and, um, you know, Unfortunately, Alex Haley didn't help us in this case, but um, it's not too late. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John, I'm wondering, since this revelation has come out and you've shared some of your research even before your book was published about this quote, what has been the response to to this revelation from King scholars, from educators? What have you heard? As soon as I found this document, even before I wrote, finished writing my book, I shared it with a number of important uh, scholars who teach Black history, and they immediately said, "Well, I got to stop teaching that quote in my classes." Uh, they were horrified that they had been spreading this misinformation. So I was really satisfied that at least um, in in a few classrooms we were able to stop immediately this this um, this lie. And since then, since the the story came out in the Post, and since my book was published. I, the, the story has gotten far more attention than I ever dreamed possible. It's been, you know, in 
hundreds of newspapers and magazines and printed all over the world. So I think that's terrific. And I think that it should force us to, you know, re-examine their relationship and rethink the contours of the civil rights movement and also um, bring greater scrutiny toward the autobiography of Malcolm X and start to look at that and see um, whether there are other issues that need to be raised. Hmm. Well, and it just also goes to show that, you know, sometimes we can think of history as this very static thing and it happened and we understand everything we know about it, but there's still so much to learn and how we even view and frame history can evolve over time, right? Absolutely. And you never know where and when history is going to change. You never know what you're going to discover or how you're going to see something in a different light. And I think that's one of the reasons why... um, Libraries and archives are so important and why history books need to be rewritten. Uh, We need a new King biography every so often. We need a new Malcolm X biography every so often because we we find out new things and we see things differently as, as time passes. Yeah, and also just thinking about this current moment and how there have been fresh waves of activism, specifically on racial justice and and these issues that both of these men um, dedicated their lives to. They haven't gone away. And so I'm just wondering about the ramifications of this discovery on current activism and future activism. Well, that's a big question, but I would say that all too often King is being misused, especially uh, by conservatives. He's used to attack affirmative action, for example, quite frequently. And uh, I think what we need to remember is that, you know, King's own voice needs to be heard. We need to go back to the original sources. We need to read his books and don't let people misuse his quotes. Um, Alex Haley was certainly not the last one to misuse King's quotes. It's happening every day. I just saw Ted Cruz quoting King today um, because uh, saying that uh, because the NAACP warned black people about traveling to Florida, and Ted Cruz was quoting Martin Luther King, saying the NAACP is out of its out of a line here. So King is being misused right up to the moment, and um, we need to let him speak for himself. Well, John, thank you so much for your work and for sharing it with us today. Thank you. Jonathan Eig is an author. His new book is King, A Life. In 1978, as part of a plagiarism lawsuit settlement, Alex Haley acknowledged material from a different book had, in his words, quote, made its way into the book Roots. Haley had long insisted Roots was historically accurate. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Sean Carter with help from Ariel Plotnick. It was edited by Rena Flores and mixed by Sean Carter. Special thanks also to reporter Gillian Brockow. And one more thing before we go. We're doing a future episode about loneliness in the United States. And we want to hear from you about your experiences with loneliness. Please send us a voice memo to postreports at washpost.com. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. 
Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.